Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mumbrella listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to Mumbrella Cast. I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is Mumbrella's senior media reporter, Hannah Blackiston. Hello. And reporter, Brittany Rigby. Hello. This week, we'll be talking about what's going on at seven. Jens Monsis arrives at WPP. The winners and losers in radio ratings. SMI is down again, but is a rebound on the horizon. First up, it's been yet another big week over at Seven, with new CEO James Warburton beginning his much-anticipated and much-talked-about restructure. It all began with the departure of Stephen Browning, Seven's head of corporate affairs, who had been with the company for just under two years. Then there was the big restructure announcement with a focus on eight departments. That same day, Seven's flagship current affairs program, Sunday Night, was axed, and now there were rumours of the network picking up Big Brother. This is all ahead of Seven's upfronts, which are coming up in a matter of weeks, and it seems to be just the beginning of many, many announcements from James. So first up, Hannah, let's talk about these rumours that Sunday night, which was their flagship current affairs program, which went up against nine 60 minutes, was axed, which is definitely confirmed. But the rumour is that it was axed to make way for Big Brother, which feels very early 2000s to me. In fact, Big Brother is so old to give people context that in the first season of Big Brother, the housemates had to write a song. And it was called something like, Don't You Think That It's Strange? And they all wrote this song, Don't You Think That It's Strange That Big Brother Is Watching? And I bought that CD single. So that is how old. Are we talking like Nikki Webster old? Like when when are we talking? Oh, look, I can't play Nikki Webster. I didn't buy Strawberry <laughs> Kisses, so I don't know where oh, that would fit yeah, on my... that was your first mistake. <laughs> ...on my record collecting timeline. But, I mean, CD singles, this is an old program. And I, I can see on your face, Hannah, that you want to turn this into a discussion about my tastes. But no. let's, <laughs> let's sidestep that and, and talk about whether axing a current affairs program for something that is so... 2000s is going to be a good move should it prove to be true. No, I was going to try and give some timeline because at the bare minimum, Big Brother had eight seasons with Channel 10 and then three additional seasons with Channel 9. So it was on air for a decent amount of time at the bare minimum, which just shows you how old it is. I think, I, I mean... I think what people have done here is maybe conflated the facts, which is Sunday night has been axed and Shine is definitely in pre-production on a new season of Big Brother and Seven seems to be the one who's picked that up, which obviously Seven won't comment on with their upcoming upfronts. Um, but it's a weird choice considering Sunday night wasn't actually tracking that badly. Obviously, it always lost to a current affair, but it wasn't dire straits. Uh, well, I think that depends how you measure dire straits in that – There were episodes of 60 Minutes this year which have had over 1 million Metro viewers and Sunday night was always hovering around the sort of 400,000 mark. So, look, yes, Seven has done worse this year, but current affairs programs, especially ones of that nature, are really, really expensive to put Mm. on. So if you're pulling an audience of around 400,000 and you're investing in journalists, you're investing in the research, you're investing in the overseas travel you're investing in the high production values. It was a show that was in trouble, but 
it didn't have to be a show that was in trouble. Mm. I think it had really strong talent with the likes of Melissa Doyle and some of the really good journalists on that program. It suffered from some terrible stories but also poor programming. You know, they moved it around all the time. You couldn't. Yeah. I was on the Richard Glover show this week on ABC Radio and I was joined by Ray Martin and Paul Barry and they were talk- we were all talking about how it couldn't be event current affairs viewing because you'd sit down and they'd let My Kitchen Rules blow out by 33 minutes of the mm. programmed time. They'd move it round for their big reality formats. And so no one knew when it was on. Some weeks they'd just skip it and then it would be back and then it would be on at a different time. So I think they sort of made it a victim it, like they created that problem for themselves and now they're like, oh, it's not working, we better just cut it instead of actually trying to fix the problem. I think the other thing at play here is um, James Warburton said that when he very early on in his role that Seven had some ageing warhorses in its programming department. Um, a current affairs programs are not necessarily skewing the youngest. I would say primarily they're probably more aimed at Seven's current demographic, which is the over 50s, which they want to change. Um, But if we look at Big Brother, which you would probably argue is a show that should appeal to younger audiences, it bowed out on Channel 9 to 650,000 viewers, which actually for Seven at the moment would be a bit of a coup because they have been struggling a lot with programming this year. But it's far beyond – at its peak, Big Brother was bringing in 1.7 million viewers, which is phenomenal. But obviously it can't be expected to do that in 2020 i also just struggle to think that the format is going to make sense in 2020 and we're not just going to get a bunch of instagram influencers hunting for fame shoved Mm. into a house together whereas big brother kind of at its heart was just a bunch of regular people yeah we were talking earlier when these rumors were swilling around and so much of the appeal and success of big brother was that real people element and especially in the first season when people didn't know what they were going on for there was no such thing as Instagram there was no such thing as an influencer in the way that we understand it today so people were just sort of having a good time and I'm sure there were people there that had aspirations of turning it into a bigger media career or platform but I think the types of people it will attract and cast today it's going to be difficult for them to differentiate from you know, Love Island and and the types of people that go on that. And I'm not casting aspersions on those types of people, but what I'm saying is it's going to be difficult to get a point of difference when you've already got really controversial, eccentric personalities on Married at First Sight. You've already got really good-looking Instagram people on Love Island. You've already got the types of people that you get on The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. So how is it going to be different? How And how are we not going to have just – people seeking fame and fortune and and attention. And again, I don't know if we want the big brother of yesteryear either. Like I think it was a different time. And there's more and more sort of focus on the role and responsibility of networks and production companies and producers and people involved in reality shows like this. We've seen it with Love Island in the UK particularly. There was backlash on Married at First Sight, the season just gone for how, you know, it went about – the, the psychologists involved went about dealing with sort of really sensitive, difficult issues and things about gaslighting and swearing and, you know, all of these messy, complicated things. We're in a time where, like, everything's amplified on Twitter, everything's amplified in this recap culture. Big Brother isn't going to get away with the stuff that it probably used to get away with way before all of this if we're thinking early 2000s. So I think you're right, Viv, that, finding that 
gap, I don't even know if it exists, between Love Island, Married at First Sight, and navigating all of that ethically and in a way that is going to be controversial enough to get viewers but not controversial enough to get backlash. Also, so much of Big Brother's appeal in the early 2000s was this idea that Big Brother was watching and that Mm. was really unusual and really bizarre and we couldn't imagine a world in which we were watched all the time. (laughs) It's 2019 (laughs) and, like, Big Brother is watching. Whether your Big Brother is Mark Zuckerberg or Russia, or your phone, or whatever it is, or even if it's just ourselves, like even if we're each other's big brother in that we're Mm. constantly monitoring each other's lives, we never properly switch off. There's always a camera in our room, in in our phones next to our bed. Uh, We've got webcams on our laptops. We're always on. We're always connected. We're always basically being watched. So I think that fascination that we had with observing people's behavior when they forget that the cameras are there, we already live in that world now. Mm. We we do, and, and people are filming and whipping out their Instagram stories at every event ever, and sometimes people know they're filming and sometimes they don't. So that craving for authentic content of people interacting in everyday lives in an unfiltered way we kind of already have that. So I don't know what the appeal of Big Brother is in 2019 when we literally live that life every day. Very Black Mirror-esque. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> and look, Big Brother isn't the only thing that's been happening at Seven this week. As we flagged, there's been a massive restructure under new CEO James Warburton where he's sort of consolidated those who report into him into eight departments It means Seven will be looking for a chief marketing officer, which they've not had before, and a chief content officer into which the programming chief, Angus Ross, will report. There's also going to be a CEO of Seven West Media in WA, a chief people and culture officer, the chief financial officer, the commercial director, the chief and the chief digital officer, as well as chief revenue officer, Kurt Burnett. So that's obviously going to involve redundancies and all sorts of changes. And it will be very interesting to see who gets that chief marketing officer gig, as well as who gets the chief digital officer gig. Hannah, do we have any word on the scale of, of this? restructure and and the redundancies and the associated cost savings because from what I can tell my goodness it could be anywhere from 30 people to 150 people 10 million to 20 million savings depending on what you read now I was told by somebody at seven that it was 10 million dollars and then was told to take that out of the story because it was wrong what sort of figures are we looking at here or does everyone just have no idea I think everyone has no idea, which is kind of a dangerous place to be in. So the Australian is the one reporting uh, between 30 and 40 people. Sydney Morning Herald has got between 100 and 150, which it's interesting to note that Seven hasn't said that figure is wrong. They haven't confirmed it. They haven't said it's wrong. And to me, if a figure is that wildly above your figure, you would say it was wrong. Uh, TV Tonight are saying that the entire publicity department outside of Sydney are going to get the axe in that restructure. So it's interesting. I think it's worth noting chief marketing officer and chief digital officer, according to seven have already been appointed. They just haven't been announced. Um, whereas chief content officer is still TBC. I was speaking to somebody from the industry earlier today who was saying there aren't that many people just hanging around looking for roles and particularly coming into a company, which 
is struggling at the moment. You know, James has obviously got some big plans for how he wants to turn that around, but it's going to take time to do that. He's obviously happy making these big moves, which is fine, but I wonder how many people are going to be happy to come into that environment, especially with a team who are maybe limping a little bit, maybe a little bit wounded, maybe aren't super happy with having lost between 30 and 150 people from their company. So it will be really interesting to see. I imagine we'll get some more clarity at the upfronts, but... Crikey's take on it was very interesting. So they've been quite scathing of Seven West Media in general in recent months. Maybe they always have been, but I've particularly noticed it in recent months. And in Crikey it says, cost-cutting is all very good and a hallmark of a new CEO who tries to put their stamp on the company. But Seven's problems are not costs. It's a lack of revenue growth compounded by the worst programming for years and a growing pipeline of dud shows. That this round of cost cuts should be inflicted on the very part of the schedule that seems to be working is Vintage 7. I mean, that is that is a scathing, <laughs> scathing assessment. And look, maybe uh, James Warburton will, will turn everybody's minds around at, at the upfronts, but he definitely has an uphill battle because even – Bride and Prejudice launched this week to just 438,000 Metro viewers in the primetime spot, meaning it was beaten by ABC's 7.30, which had 536,000, Hard Quiz with Tom Gleeson, which had 670,000, and Nine Stalwart, The Block, which had 853,000. So definitely a challenging time ahead. What are you looking forward to at Sevens Upfronts, Hannah? Um, I mainly am just so keen to see what programming announcements are going to be because as you touched on there Bride and Prejudice not doing well even the other ones like House Rules didn't do great this season even My Kitchen Rules which has been a real you know pillar in Seven's content up until now still not doing that well they cancelled the second season of that they also cancelled Temptation Island this year Super Switch got chucked onto another channel so I cannot wait for them to roll out hopefully a whole bunch of new programs which will get some attention and to find out what they're doing with Big Brother. Well, next up, welcome to WPP, Jens Monsees. WPP AUNZ welcomed Jens Monsees this week as its new CEO after 12 months with interim CEO John Stedman. Monsees walks into a fairly complicated company with a seeming exodus of staff, allegations of discrimination, and a series of incredibly controversial mergers. Viv, on top of all this, it's been pointed out time and time again, Jens joins from a background of being client-side. Do you think that was a deliberate choice because WPP felt like maybe they needed some fresh blood? Look, there's no way that WPP have done such a major switch accidentally. Uh, they obviously did a global search to end up with a German client-side marketer uh, when so many people were expecting someone local or someone from within WPP globally. So, look, it is it is deliberate and it, to me it says it, they're trying to shake things up, which is exactly what the organisation needs in all of the gossip I heard about who might eventually get the role that used to be held by Mike Conahan, there were so many names thrown around nobody was throwing around the name oh I think it's going to be Jens Monsees <laughs> the BMW digital marketer from Germany uh, it does mean that for us here in the market 
a lot of us are blind as to what he's going to be like in the same way that he's copying preemptive criticism that, you know, he doesn't know this market, he doesn't know what it's like at agency holding groups, he doesn't understand how it works here. We also are quite blind to his abilities, what he's able to do. We haven't really heard of him here. So he could be incredibly successful and blow us all out of the water, but we all sort of don't know what to expect. He's not somebody we've written about. He's not somebody we've talked about. He's not somebody that we've been around. So it's a definite, definite shake-up. I'm sure there are some people at WPP who are super excited and looking forward to the period of change that he'll no doubt bring. But as we uh, revealed in our really big piece done by our chief reporter, Steve Jones, this week about the state of WPP as Jens is inheriting it, there are a lot of people that are sceptical of his ability to undertake such a mammoth task when there are so many problems facing that network. I think that's the point, though, right, in that I think Steve pointed out quite well in the piece that the reason for someone new and someone totally foreign to the market being a good choice or at least the right choice, whether or not it turns out to be good or not, you know, the right choice in the circumstances, is because he's totally unfamiliar about all of the politics and egos and context and history that surrounds not only WPP but the Australian market and he'll be able to come in assess things objectively not have friends that he's scared of upsetting or clients that he's worried about hurting their feelings or these long established relationships with companies that he's afraid to merge together or get rid of altogether Um, I think it'll be really interesting how he comes in, looks at things, and then acts completely sort of separate from people who, you know, of course are going to have really strong feelings towards these companies and brands and reputations that they've sort of helped build up. Yeah, look, WPP is just a behemoth of an organisation. It, mm-hmm. It's huge. And one of the criticisms levied at it often is that it's an old boys and indeed old girls club just in that you know if you're in it you're in it and it can be really hard to crack it and that there are some sort of legacy ideas sort of holding the company back and as Steve Jones points out in his piece Jens won't have those loyalties and won't be disrupted by a a huge history with any of these people who've been within the organization and he might be able to look at it a bit better and just sort of chop and change what he needs to to give anyone context in terms of WPP, although I'm sure everybody already knows, you know, it has media agencies such as Group M's Wavemaker and Mindshare. It has creative agencies in the form of Ogilvy and White Grey, which is from a merger of agencies, you know, known as White and Grey and VML YNR, which came from VML and YNR. It has Wonderman Thompson, which came from another, you know, very creative merger there. One thing I'll be interested to see is the global CEO of WPP, Mark Reed, who took over from the founder, Martin Sorrell, has made it clear that they need to consolidate the group and they need to sort of stop going down this crazy path they'd been going of just agencies everywhere and too many brands and too many brand names. If Jens comes in and does indeed want to keep consolidating and keep reducing the number of agencies to find efficiencies and synergies and whatnot – 
Will we see him come up with more creative merged names than the incredibly inventive VML, YNR and White Grey? Uh, or, or will we see the creation of new brand names? I mean, I just can't get over how, how many agencies they still have and I'll be really interested to see what that looks like from someone with a fresh perspective. It's interesting when... I came into this role without a background in this industry and even getting my head around all, and I know it was probably the same for you, Brittany, getting your head around all the different names of agencies, all the different acronyms, all that kind of stuff. Can you imagine sitting down as your first, in your first day as CEO for this big company and then laying this in front of you and being like, here are all the businesses that fall under your remit. And it's just a bunch of random letters and names. And you would just be like, "That's how am I ever going to get my head around this? That's completely it. And I mean, the whole industry is a bit of a bubble, right? Mm. Like for anyone who doesn't know someone or hasn't grown up with connections, it's already a bubble. I think the unrest and the distrust of yens stems from the fact that it's a bubble. And as you say, you and I came in and the acronyms, the agency names, the jargon is pretty crazy, but especially crazy for an industry called the communications industry. <laughs> and I think I think sometimes that's an advantage though, right? Because you can kind of see mm. through what's real, what's not, what's fluff, what's, you know, the actual gritty stuff underneath. And I'm I'm quietly optimistic that he'll be able to sort of view it view it that same way. Yeah, so one of the sources quoted in Steve Jones' piece, which if you haven't read, I would highly recommend you do, although you're going to need to set aside quite some time, uh, says, for good or bad, he, Jens, has no affiliation with the agencies and none of the people. He's not there to build relationships or build a company. He's there to smash it up. Jens has done a huge tech transformation inside BMW. WPP needs that expertise. They need to get a balance. They have tech companies and traditional agencies but have never been able to pull it together. Jens could be the man to do that. Mm. That's quite a task he's been challenged with. But, you know, it is still a group that despite how much, you know, We've criticised it and, and held it to account for some of the mistakes that it's made or some of the issues it's facing. It still has some really good agencies, some really good people and some huge clients. You know, Mindshare has the $40 million media account for Mondelez International, Wavemaker One, Australia Post. Creatively, they've got KFC, NAB and other huge, huge brands. And, you know, those brands wouldn't be sticking with agencies if they thought they were crap but I guess those agencies those brands are buying into those agencies rather than WPP AUNZ as a whole so I think it's WPP that needs the transformation not necessarily some of the people and agencies within it but it is you know such 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 a big job but you know one he's being paid very well for it and and two <laughs> mm. other people are saying probably at the moment the only way is up because he, if he can do it he'll have a really good transformation story to tell I, I think, think oh, oh you oh, both sorry. think <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're all thinking <laughs> I was just going to say I think that quote probably sums it up quite well as well because you can always tell what a company wants to do by who they put into that top position so if they bring in somebody outside of the industry particularly they're usually whatever that person's speciality is, is where they want to go. So obviously WPP do want to look to the future. And as you mentioned, it being an old boys and girls club, that won't be a bad thing for them. The other thing is, is that 
almost the biggest part of the job, I think, might be not doing the work that has to be done, but convincing people of why that work has to be done along the way. And I think Seven's kind of in a similar position where it's almost bringing the people that are there along for the journey with you, making sure that you maintain, preserve a culture and morale when huge changes are happening and everyone's like, is it me next? Is it my agency next? What's going to be changed for me? Um, as sort of you've both touched on the old boys and girls club mentality and sort of reputation, I guess, um, evidently needs to be addressed. I mean, there's Karma Williamson's case before the court at the moment that is basically saying, yes, this is a boys club. And so it'll be really interesting to see how Jens, not just from someone outside the industry, but someone also, you know, from a completely different cultural background will deal with that. But I think that him establishing relationships with all of the agencies from the get-go is going to be one of the most important things he can do to make sure that all of those agencies are, are there with him as, you know, these changes unfold. Next up, the advertisers might be abandoning Alan Jones, but the listeners are not. This week also saw the release of GFK Radio Ratings Survey 6, which included the period when Macquarie Media's 2GB breakfast host Alan Jones saw a mass exodus of advertisers. The advertisers exited over Jones's comments concerning New Zealand PM Jacinda Ardern, you know, those ones where he said Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison should shove a sock down her throat. And I think there was also something in there about backhanding her. So with all of these advertisers and brands leaving and speculation over whether Alan Jones can survive, particularly when he's been put on notice by his employer Macquarie Media that if he does it again, he'll get the boot. Everybody was waiting to see whether his faithful listeners would also abandon him. And I think we weren't particularly surprised when he held pretty steady, so he had a 16.8% share in the slot, which is down just 0.3 points from the previous survey, which realistically is is nothing. You know, in terms of declines, a 0.3 point decline is just absolutely nothing. And particularly with radio surveys, you really do need to look at more than one book to discern a trend. And there is certainly no trend of people abandoning Alan Jones. Hannah, was anyone really expecting his share to go down? No. Um, I think if anyone was expecting his share to go down, it's a naive view. I think um, as we, I mean, we spoke about this exhaustively at the time, but I think the advertisers obviously get a little bit of a PR bump from abandoning him. Maybe it looks better on their brand to not be associated with somebody who says that. But for people listening to the radio, even if they – at any point felt like their their own personal brand might be at fault for listening to Alan Jones. Nobody knows what you listen to in your car. So I think also the people listening to Alan Jones are probably diehard Alan Jones fans. You're not just tapping in and tapping out as a sometimes Alan Jones fan. So you're not going to leave. You also, you know what you're getting in terms of the people that are listening would have been with him long enough to know what his views are and what he's like and what he does when he crosses the line. So I'm sure there were some people who listened to it and didn't like what he said, but at the same time, 
they're not the sort of people that are going to be outraged and walk away because then they would have already done that when he'd crossed the line many times previously. So it's not like it's the first time he's ever said something like this or caused this kind of outrage or caused this kind of backlash. So I certainly wasn't expecting it to go down because otherwise those people would have left a long time ago and he, he wouldn't be the powerhouse that he is. It's very specifically as well a comment about women, which is definitely something he's done in the past. It's not like I think maybe if you look at Kyle and Jackie O where obviously they just had a bit of a backlash over Kyle's comments over the Virgin Mary, that's maybe the first time that he's hit out at religion specifically. So that might have lost them some listeners, although probably not. I think in this case, Alan Jones has been quite vocal about his thoughts on women in the past. So it seemed really unlikely that this was something going to result in an exodus of listeners. The other thing is, is that, I mean, say what you want about Alan Jones. I've made my thoughts on him and the whole saga pretty clear. I do clear. say what I want about Alan Jones. <laughs> Repeatedly. Um, but he, he has a connection with his listeners. His listeners – uh, as, as you say, so used to who he is, they have him on as part of their lives day in, day out. And yeah, this is what they expect. This is what they know him for. The sort of stuff, the PC brigade, say what you think, shtick is very much his. And I think unfortunately, well, again, that, that's just my opinion. Um, but they, they're not going to be swayed by the people on Twitter, the campaigns on Twitter, brands pulling out. They're of a demographic that is not going to be influenced by that. Also in Sydney, what perhaps interested me a little bit more, although I'm not sure we saw the full effects in this survey, was Today FM recently deciding to axe people for breakfast and choosing to go with music. Yes, so that decision to... uh move to a more music-focused program than a talent and talking-based program. It uh, started on the 19th of August, so with Jamie Angel behind the mic, but a lot more focus on music. So this survey does capture that somewhat. And, look, it was never going to be an immediate turnaround for Today FM Breakfast, no matter what they did. So the last survey, they had a share of 2.4% and they've climbed 0.1 point, which again is like could be a statistical blip. You know, it's so small, it's not a trend. It's good for Today FM and Southern Cross Hysteria that it didn't go any lower than 2.4, but they won't be sort of upset by this result. They wouldn't have been expecting a huge turnaround it's still obviously incredibly far off the FM leaders, Kyle and Jackie O, which have an 11.6% share. So they've got a long way to go back to the glory days of when they had Kyle and Jackie O on their airwaves, but they'd be saving quite a bit of money on talent and promotional costs and all the marketing that went around all of those talent that they've had over the past couple of years. 2.5% is more than 2.4%, and I'm sure they're hoping for just a few more gains and today FM in general as a station went up more significantly. So look, it's not fantastic. They're still in trouble, but it's not getting worse, which is basically a good news story for today FM. And and speaking of uh, good news stories in Melbourne, uh, Australian radio networks, gold 104.3 FM brought over British broadcaster, Christian O'Connell a little while ago, Hannah, and that seems to be doing well for gold and indeed for Christian. Yeah, it's interesting. Christian has driven 
them up quite a lot. So his uh, breakfast, he is the breakfast host over at Gold, and his breakfast share at the moment is nine point five percent, which that the winning the win in that slot for the FM stations is currently sitting on Fox FM, who have got nine point six. So he's obviously incredibly close to that. He rose one point five percentage points in this survey, which is a pretty decent result. And overall, Gold have just pushed over the top of Fox FM. I mean, that's that's huge. And Christian O'Connell does target a, a slightly older demographic than Fox FM and than Fifi, Fev and Byron. But to be so close to that breakfast slot on Fox FM is really, really big because Christian O'Connell hasn't been here that long. He wasn't hugely familiar to Australian or indeed Melbourne, more specifically, audiences. And Fifi, Fev and Byron, that show – it's been through a few iterations, but it's a real legacy and it's a really established brand. You know, Fox FM is the Today FM in Melbourne. It's the hit network and and the different stories that Fox FM and how successful it is in Melbourne compared to how Today FM's going in Sydney, they're totally different top and tail stories. It is Fox is a huge success for Southern Cross Stereo and for the hit network. So for someone so new in Christian O'Connell to be coming within spitting distance of of Fox. I mean, Australian Radio Network must be absolutely thrilled because that's a quick quick turnaround for them and a, a quick quick gain. And, and if he can topple the legacy brand of Fox, that would be pretty impressive. And I think as well what we're seeing there is, you know, people quite often say if you've won them for breakfast, you've got them for the whole day. And overall, Gold FM have risen to a 12% share in Mel- with Melbourne audiences that's a 2.2 percentage point rise just in this survey so they've just toppled fox fm who dropped down to 9.4 percent audience share so if this is all christian's doing which you know i'm sure there is plenty of other good (laughs) stuff happening across the gold brand but it's pretty impressive and they've got to be really happy with those results and look as i said with the alan jones thing before it does you need to look at more than one book to establish a trend especially because the survey periods from gfk do crossover so there are often dates within one survey that then the tail end end up in the next survey as well so when we get to survey seven and eight of this year that's when we'll really see a trend sometimes it can be that a certain station is doing a really exciting promotion that consumers are switching over for you know if you've got something that's a huge million dollar giveaway or or a competition that really captures people attention people's attention and they want to keep tuning in that can give you a blip on one book so by the end of the year I think we'll have a more accurate picture of how Christian is genuinely tracking with the Melbourne audiences and whether he's going to be the market leader and Hannah an exciting news for our Perth listeners uh, I hear you're starting to care about Perth radio <laughs> I'm getting a little bit obsessed with Perth radio <laughs> there is so much movement happening in Perth at the moment and it's really exciting me so 96 (laughs) can everyone please stop laughing at me um 96 fm who dropped their breakfast duo of paul hogan and lisa fernandez earlier this year for fred bodica and lisa shaw's bodica's bunch for breakfast that seems to have resulted quite well for them their breakfast slot is on the rise but what's more interesting is 96 fm overall is on the rise so they saw a two percent two percentage point gain in this survey that's kind of seems to be tracking back to they recently gained Dan Underhill, who joined as program director from Nova. So Nova in Perth have just announced that 
Sydney operations manager, Dave McClung, has gone back to Perth. He left there in November last year to go to Sydney, has now returned. So I think what will be really interesting talking about wider trends is to see Dan in Dan when he was at Nova was kind of known as the guy who'd managed to push it up and then keep it there. So now that he's over at 96FM, I think it will be really interesting to see, especially towards the end of the year and into early 2020, whether his carryover to that station will really continue to push it higher. Because it's certainly so far, that's I think the last three or four radio ratings, it's been on the rise. And just quickly to wrap this up, I've noticed that all of the good news stories that we've told in this segment have been about Australian radio network stations. So we've talked about how Kyle and Jackie O on KISS FM in Sydney have managed to retain their FM lead despite all of Kyle's controversies. We've talked about Gold 104.3 in Melbourne and how Christian O'Connell is helping them tackle a legacy brand and station. And now we've talked about 96 FM's effective breakfast decision and how they're going well. So obviously a good book for Australian Radio Network, but just to uh, our other radio friends, it is just a coincidence that we've given ARN so much love this podcast. And as with television ratings in radio ratings, you know, Everyone does get a win. There's so many stations and so many networks and so many personalities across the five cities that we report on that I do acknowledge that everybody has had success. Nova's Kate, Tim and Marty and Drive in some cities just get phenomenally high shares and that is a a show that is just so strong. So I wouldn't want to overlook that, but it is obviously a very good time for ARN and some of those key shows that they've been backing. Next, SMI data is down again, but reports are it may soon turn around. So the Standard Media Index, which measures the media agency-funded ad market, has recorded the 12th consecutive month of decline It's down 8.9% for August compared to August in 2018. Brittany, you've been here for six months, which means every time you've actually had to write the SMI data, you've had to write about a decline. Do you buy into this idea that it could be about to turn around? I don't know if it's like a long-term turnaround. So Jane Ratcliffe, who's the uh, managing director for AUNZ, for SMI, she said that October looks pretty good. That's because of the recent tax cuts, um, the interest rate cut, and she also pointed to the fact that October 2018 was pretty weak. So it was back 7.7% on October in 2017. So they're saying that it'll return to growth in October, but October 2018 isn't necessarily as strong as other months in 2018 were. SMI does say that it will continue into 2020, but the market's been weak all year. Well, not even just all year, 12 consecutive months now. We're still seeing really big categories like auto and retail still back. So it will be interesting to see if over the next six months it can start to claw back some of those declines um, and sustain growth for that long rather than just a month or two. I mean, February saw the lowest in 10 years. So 
if you're going to say, okay, it could come back, I don't, <laughs> I feel like I'm sounding overly negative already, but if you're going to say, okay, it could come back in October, but that's because October 2018 was really low, if they're not then going to see growth in February 2020, that would be a bit sad. So, but then you're kind of basically saying, well, those six months are going to be fine because they were so bad this year, which to me, I don't know whether you're allowed to champion that as growth. So Hannah's assessment of the ad market, it's a bit sad. <laughs> well, I mean, look, a lot of it, a lot of the talk has been that 2018 was sort of this outlier in terms of how good it was because we had the Commonwealth Games, we had the Financial Services Royal Commission, the Football World Cup, various elections, both by-elections and state elections. So SMI is sort of quietly optimistic in saying, 2019 has been an uphill battle trying to sustain what we saw last year in light of all of those events. Maybe 2020 will be easier and I'm sure it will be because 2019 has not been great up against 2018. But yeah, I get what you're saying in that if you're comparing, you know, 2020 to 2019, any growth is going to look good because we've seen decline for so long, but how good actually is that growth? Yeah, I mean, they've sort of, SMI said that the big events of 2018 compared to political uncertainty, economic volatility, lack of business confidence and a tighter credit market post-Royal Commission have really added to the gap between last year and this year. Plus there's, you know, what's going on just economically more widely, the RBA has cut interest rates mm-hmm. again. So we're just, we're dealing with a lot of economic factors that are somewhat out of the ad market's control. So in a way, sometimes Adland and, and indeed the trade press can be criticized for being overly negative on itself and talking itself almost into a recession. Like we're always celebrating the losses more than we're championing the wins. And there are definitely still a lot of wins out there, but in a way, it's sort of beyond us talking ourselves into anything negative at the moment. There are larger economic and political forces at play. It's not like every other industry and every other segment of the economy is absolutely out there killing it, smashing it with huge wage growth and, and huge improvements and everything. And it's just poor old Adland in the corner that's suffering. Adland is a reflection of the greater economy and when that's contracting, obviously we're suffering the consequences of that as well. So whilst we can't be too negative, part of that is also because it's not just Adland, it's just the state of what we're in at the moment. Totally. And there are some small bright spots, but bright spots nonetheless. So insurance was up 33% in August, which is a really big jump. And it also leads the categories yearly, so the year-to-date. So it's up 8.7% for the year. Travel is up 9.3% for the year. So there are some bright spots and I hope I hope that SMI is right and that the growth starts in October and continues onwards and upwards from there, I guess. And speaking of insurance, you know, so many of the campaigns that we write at the moment are for insurance brands. Exactly. There's NRMA, there's CGU, there's the huge budget direct campaign uh, with Sarge that keeps releasing new iterations. And then as well, I mean, the other big one that we just tend to write about seems to be gambling-based ads. I can, so that that segment is definitely thriving. Mm. The tabs of the world, the sports, sports bet, you know, they're, they're definitely still spending and definitely still advertising. And then there's other categories that we just haven't seen 
as much. I certainly haven't noticed as many retail ads coming through, but my goodness, uh, insurance is definitely spending and definitely creating. And, and so is that, you know, ever faithful gambling category. Before we wrap up this week, I just wanted to really quickly encourage those of you who are newer to the industry, so probably with around 10 years or under that experience, to go to mumbrella.com.au slash next awards. Now, the entries for next awards themselves are closed, but in December, we are actually hosting before the awards a half-day conference that will be full of tips and tricks from some of the industry's absolute best for those people who are a bit newer to really accelerate their career. So we've got Chris Howitson from CHE Proximity, the Chief Marketing Officer of Coles, Lisa Ronson, and the CEO of Nova Entertainment, Kathy O'Connor speaking. And they're just the ones that I can recall off the top of my head. To come along to the conference and the awards, I believe is only $199 and you're going to get so much information and have a really good time and huge networking opportunities. So please head to mumbrella.com.au slash next awards to find out more and to potentially buy a ticket and come along. For now though, thank you very much team. Thanks. Thanks.